Welcome, I'm Ross Young and I'm here with G. Mark Hardy, and we are excited to share with you CISO Tradecraft. Just as a quick background in case you haven't heard our show before, CISO Tradecraft is a podcast designed to help folks in the information security community learn the techniques, methods, and technologies in the industry. The show focuses on helping mentor the next generation of cyber leaders take information security skills to an executive level. With that, I'm excited to present to you today's show. Hi, welcome to CISO Tradecraft. I'm Ross Young with G. Mark Hardy, and today we're going to talk a little bit about governance. And in case you haven't heard of it, we're going to go over the definitions and background, but let me just set the stage a little bit. So I spent most of my career, early days, at CIA, where I was learning how to hack into things and learning to find vulnerabilities in the systems. And that was a very focused on a offensive technical point of view. And I learned lots of really cool things. I had a great time. But then after I left the federal government, I went to Capital One. And you can imagine going to a highly regulated banking environment to be a little bit different than just purely focusing on technical implementations of how to break into systems. And so what I needed to learn was all of the requirements, the policies, and the objectives of an organization and what you need to meet in order to comply with the law. So today we're going to talk a little bit about some of those items and help you gain the knowledge of what you need to be successful if you're coming from a highly technical point of view and haven't spent much time in the governance and legal frameworks. That's a good point, Ross. And again, thank you for your service. I think that you get a chance to live the dream there for a while. But you've made an excellent point is that for a lot of us who have come up in the technical realm, that we get to the level where we're dealing with policies and all the elements of governance. And we're a little bit out of our depth, perhaps, and yet that's a core competency that we're going to need to have. So we hope to cover today is to give you a great overview of what's in governance, all a lot of the components in terms of documentation, hierarchy thereof, and even ways that you can go ahead and get started. So to kick it off, Gmark, what does the word IT governance mean? So we're talking the same language here. Right. If we go and take a look at the ISO standard, ISO 27001 defines IT governance as the system by which an organization directs and controls security governance. Of course, that's sort of a circular reference, specifying the accountability framework and provides oversight to ensure that risks are adequately mitigated while management ensures that controls are implemented to mitigate risks. Or another definition offered by the Center for Internet Security states that governance describes the policies and processes which determine how organizations detect, prevent, and respond to cyber incidents. Governance tends to emphasize strategic planning. So in essence, governance is oversight. How does the organization's management team provide oversight into the cybersecurity function and what are the tools and techniques that are used to make that happen? That's right. So what we're talking about is how do we build a framework of oversight that allows us to be consistent, adequate, reasonable, timely, you know, all the things you would want to see so that things are well handled in a, in a process. And as we start to think about this, there might be certain types of requirements. And who determines what those requirements are for cyber organizations? 
Great question. Typically, requirements are going to come from external or internal sources. Externally, these tend to be non-negotiable. Statutory requirements, legal requirements or regulations. If you're in the U.S., you might have a requirement that you have to comply with HIPAA or some other requirement about Sarbanes-Oxley if you're a publicly traded company, etc. There are also non-U.S. legal and statutory requirements, such as the General Data Protection Regulation, the GDPR, which on the 25th of May 2018 came into force, uh, and maybe data protection laws in other countries. In addition, there may be contractual requirements. If you're a government contractor, you're going to have to comply with different requirements, uh, CMMC, for example, for federal DOD uh, contracting, and then things such as the NIST 800-171, as well as private contracts. If I sign an agreement to go ahead and process credit cards, I'm going to have to comply with the PCI DSS. And then lastly, there may be industry standards. Those represent externals, and for the most part, you can't argue those away. Internally, however, what we do is our requirements should ensure that we align with their overall strategy. We do not want our IT security function to be misaligned with the organization's strategy, or we're going to find ourselves unable to be effective in terms of our governance. We want to meet business goals. If our organization offers our customers service level agreements, SLAs, for example, we want to ensure that we meet that. And then ultimately what we're looking to do is to reduce variability in results. If you take a look at earnings season, when a company announces that their earnings are significantly different than expectations, the stock takes a wild ride up or down. And really what we want to do is we want to normalize those by making sure that we don't produce any surprises in our enterprise. So very good points here. With external, we can't really go argue with the government and say, change this for just my company, right? They're not going to really listen. <laughs> and the other piece about it is there's typically fees or non-compliance costs. You know, they can remove your operating licenses that you need to work in a certain sector. They can charge you money if they find you to be negligent in protecting things. So it's important to get those right. And if you're not aligned with the internal business, well, you're not going to be in that CISO role for very long. You'll be replaced for someone who, who can get with the picture. Yeah, that's a good point. And so I guess maybe we add another requirement in there. Keep your job. And so <laughs> all the other ones help kind of enforce that prime directive, which is to stay in your job so you can continue to work. So from a governance perspective, then what we're going to have is a number of tools at our disposal. And typically, governance is implemented through a series of documents. And these documents, which we are probably familiar with, have a inherent hierarchy. That is to say, policies and standards and guidelines and controls of procedures and baselines and metrics and lions and tigers and bears, oh my. There's actually an appropriate place for putting the correct scope of governance and the level of detail into each of these documents. So Ross, for a kind of a quick overview, uh, let, let me offer a couple ideas. So a policy is going to be a high level mandatory requirement established by management. Policies are not issued by the assistant mailroom clerk, for example. They're often issued by a governing body, board of directors, commanding general, managing director, perhaps a CIO for IT specific. Control objectives, are established targets 
or conditions to ensure that the intent of the policy is met. Standards are medium level formal requirements to allow us to comply with policy. Think of the National Institute of Standards and Technology, for example. They write standards to comply with what policy? Federal law for the United States. And so, for example, Federal Information Systems Management Act, FISMA of 2002, would be a policy. And then the NIST standards like 853, Rev5, et cetera, would then show how to comply with that policy. Guidelines are a little bit lower level in the hierarchy, and those are recommended practices. They allow some flexibility. There is a, a great line in the Pirates of the Caribbean where they were supposed to go do something and someone said, it's against the Pirate's Code policy. And the response was, it's more of a guideline, meaning that it's flexible. Procedures then are step-by-step -step methodologies to complete some objective. Now, procedures don't exist at the corporate level. They're pretty much something that you would hand to your staff. Um, controls could be technical, administrative, or physical. We'll talk about the difference in those briefly in a moment. And then we could use those to prevent, detect, or respond to threat actors. The last couple elements in our hierarchy would be a baseline. And those are configurations or initial setups for new equipment or software or cloud configurations, for example. Knowing that we start at the same baseline gives us a better chance to ensure consistency. And then lastly, we'll talk about metrics, collecting data to facilitate decision-making and meet compliance. So policy, control objectives, standards, guidelines, procedures, controls, baseline, and metrics. Good. So we have a variety of documents. They're not just synonyms. Right? You can't just send everybody the same thing and say, eh, it's the same. No, they're very different, right? And we want to make sure that we're sharing things to the right level. So we may share policies with third parties when we're trying to get business with them, but we're probably not going to share the deepest level of how our internally things are configured on every setting, right? And that's a great point because when I uh, teach policy, the, what we find is that a lot of the examples I can cite come from .edu's. And universities are, A, willing to share their policies, and B, probably write the most permissive ones out there. So they're not always a good uh, sample to follow. But when I was over in Korea a few years ago, teaching policy for a, a large, well, Samsung. I mean, I wasn't doing anything sensitive there. It was interesting because they had this huge uh, policy library. And you figure that Samsung is one of the largest employers in the country. They're kind of like IBM and General Motors and Microsoft and, I don't know, pick three or four other companies, all roll them up combined. Just fantastic. And it was interesting. They said, well, hey, could I get a copy of your policy library? Because I'm out here showing you ideas. And they said, well, no, we consider that proprietary. And they should consider it proprietary because a lot of the things at the high level may specify things that you don't want your competitors or attackers to know. And they said, besides, we write ours originally into Hangul, and then we translate them into English. If you'd like to help us write policies, uh, once you gain proficiency in the Korean language, you're more than welcome to participate. Well, I didn't say it that way, but they sort of applied. So policies can be shared, but also you might want to share them under an NDA, non-disclosure agreement, or redact them in some capacity to ensure you don't give away competitive advantage. 
Exactly. You know, and, and I think the sharing would always be limited because, you know, this is part of your internal holdings. But when you really look inside a policy, it's going to have very high level language, right? Mm-hmm. Hey, we want confidentiality, integrity, and availability of our systems. Well, that should be no shocker to anybody in any company, right? So high level things like that are are okay, if that's really on the open internet, is that going to damage your company? Probably not compared to something like, hey, here's how we configure our routers. That, that'd be a lot worse if that was uh, really open and it wasn't a best practice, right? Right. And so by taking advantage of this ability to place different levels of detail at different places in the hierarchy, we're able to provide that delineation, which makes it, if you will, a little bit safer to share some certain information with partners. Now, when you write a policy, Ross, any thoughts in terms of how long should a policy statement be? Should this be 10, 20, 30, 50, 80 pages? um, Or are we going for brevity here? So I think you want brevity, right? Anything over 10 pages, people just aren't going to read. Right. So I I don't know if you really need something that's, you know, an 80 page, you know, thesis of perfect security. Right. You want something that sets the the high level expectations for the organization and really allows a mapping to things that are going to be much more fleshed out in the control objectives and standards and guidelines. And if you think about it, one of the questions I ask is, what is the average attention span of an executive measured in pages? rounded up to the nearest whole integer. And a lot of people will say one. Okay, you're lucky to get an executive to read a single page. So even if we were to go to a 10-page policy, let alone 20 or 30, it's a very good chance senior leadership won't bother to read it, which means rank and file doesn't feel they need to read it. So brevity is the key. You are correct. And the shorter, the more concisely that we could write the policy, the better. The details get pushed down below. So the next... What's yeah. what's after policy then, G. Mark? Well, associated with policy would be control objectives, and what these are, their targets or conditions to make sure that the intent of our policy is met. Often, control objectives can be linked to industry best practice rather than, for example, the policies which might be linked to external contractual or legal requirements. Control objectives should map to some policy requirement. So essentially, start with the industry best practices, which there's often ways you can find based upon in what area you work. Evaluate your policy requirements and then just bridge the gap. When you connect the two, you then find out certain objectives that make sense. Okay. So these control objectives are really making sure that the policy is met. And this is where audit tends to spend a lot of their time along with testing the actual controls, which is slightly different. But it's important to to start to think about, hey, we're not just a paper organization. We need to meet the intent of the paper, right? Right. And auditors audit against whatever you have in writing. And if if you're Policy says everybody wears a mask because of COVID and you have to wear it within the office, then that's an auditable item. And if you see people walking around without masks, boom, you can ding them. In the IT security world, we can have things such as multi-factor authentication, maybe a policy. Well, that's actually almost too high for a policy. I would say that if you're using MFA, I would never put that in a policy. 
in the policy level, I would say things such as access to corporate IT resources shall be restricted to employees only. And we'll go down at the next level to figure out how do we actually implement that policy standard of ensuring that only employees access IT resources. Okay. So what would be after control objectives? Here's where we start to get into the meat of writing. Standards. They're medium level, formal requirements that provide ways to comply with a policy. Standards define actions, processes, or configurations, and these will help satisfy the control objectives, which of course are mapped to some policy requirements. So we start to see how this all connects together. And standards are gonna contain a lot more detail than the policy. As I mentioned, the National Institute of Standards and Technology, or NIST, has an entire library of special publications, the 800 series, that are all designed around coming up with ways to comply with policy, which would be federal law. So NIST writes special publications, not because it seems like they're bored and they need something to do, but it provides government agencies and then also through other elements like the NIST cybersecurity framework, which is for critical infrastructure organizations, ways to better improve what they're doing to help meet whatever policy requirements they have. So as we start to think about this, you know, you may have a control objective that says we need to protect our data. But when we think about a standard, we would go a step further and say we have a data classification standard that says, you know, maybe we have three types of data. We may have just boring, unclassified data. We may have sensitive data. And we may have what is restricted handling data, your, your really special things that have to be only given to certain people and, and really controlled. And this standard would spell that out our on what are the requirements for each of these standards so that the organization performs in a consistent way. Right, and what we're talking about there in terms of labeling information or data classification standard is often one of the difficult elements for corporations. In DOD, as a military officer, the whole idea of having every document, in fact, every paragraph of every single message of, or every document marked was, yeah, of course. And you see paren, you, paren, you, paren, you, means unclassified, and then you see a C or an S or a TS or something like that, which tells you it's at a higher level of classification. But that was part of the culture. And so what happens in a lot of corporate organizations, we don't have that same culture. When I deal with law firms doing expert witness work, they will email to me the entire theory of their case. In an email, I say like, guys, this isn't even encrypted. It's not even protected. This is the core of your argument. And their response is, oh, well, the other side would never bother to cheat and take a look at our email. I said, don't worry about the other side. I'm worried about somebody else who's going to go ahead and take advantage of the fact that you're dealing with a publicly traded company as either a plaintiff or a defendant, and you could move the stock price. So as we go back and we take a look at these standards, is there a policy in place that says we shall protect corporate sensitive information and label it accordingly? If it's not labeled correctly, you don't know when to protect it. That's a really good point. And, and 
Think about this too on a technical perspective of an IT system. Do you just classify the data of the overall IT system and say this is a core banking system and it has everything or it's Salesforce and it could have some banking in it? Or do you actually go into the fields to say this subsection is classified this way and, and then we can allow sharing to this other system through APIs? So it gets a little tricky when you start looking in the weeds of some of those things. So how might guidelines help us with some of these standards? Well, standards then, if they represent, here are the things that you shall do to comply with policy, guidelines represent the things that you ought to do, things that you should consider. And so the language of policy and even standards tends to be rather absolute. All employees shall do this. You must do this. Never do this. But when it comes to guidelines, guidelines exist where there's discretion or multiply acceptable options. For example, if the policy says only employees shall access corporate IT resources, the standard could say we shall control that with long, complex passwords, which require so many characters, uppercase, lowercase numbers, etc. But the guideline then would be recommendations such as don't use your old password and put the number one after it or two or three. Don't use the name of a pet or something easily identifiable with yourself. There's no way I can write a policy that lists everybody's pet name but a guideline says, hey, these are things you should consider not doing because they're bad ideas or consider doing them because they're better ideas. And a lot of times we partner with the architects within our organization to determine what the guidelines should be. Maybe there's four ways to skin a cat and they say, here's the three ways to do it in a preferred pattern. Right. And, mm -hmm. and that's something you can go and use. And I apologize for anybody who really loves cats. It's just a, a phrase. But I think as we look and partner with people to not just build these policies and standards on our own, but really focus together with the architects and other people who are going to be affected by these policies, we, we build these together. Right. And so now what we have is sort of a three tier stack of documents, policy being the foundational element. Everything depends on that. We enforce it with control objectives, we measure it, but then the standards would be sort of the next tier. Think of like building up a Maslow hierarchy of, of governance. Standards and the medium level. And then guidelines, your recommended practices. What comes next then are things that are a little bit less applicable to everyone. Although the guidelines for, in the example we use, password use, everybody should consider using the guidelines. They definitely shall follow the policies and procedures. But I'm sorry, the policies and the um, standards. Standards. Thank you very much. I'm looking at the next item here, which is procedures. And so procedures then are more focused. Procedures aren't necessarily done by everyone. They are going to be responsibility of the asset custodian to be able to be in charge of these procedures. For example, what is a procedure for setting up a new user account? If I'm using uh, Microsoft and I'm creating a new account there in Azure, I would go ahead and say, I want to first get the user identification information, establish this, assign this, allocate that, 
set this, etc. Essentially, the procedures are step-by-step methodologies to complete an objective, and they're designed to support standards and policies such that the individual following those procedures is able to ensure that whatever they do, the end result complies. So let's take the example of as a CISO, you're trying to make your organization meet TLS 1.2 compliance. Mm -hmm. Well, you might create a procedure that says, look, if you're a developer and you're running a Java server, we would like you to configure TLS with these settings. And we may say these certain ciphers are only allowed and these other ones are weak ciphers, so you need to remove those. So that level of specification of how to go into your Java server, how to configure this file so that it only allows these sorts, these sorts of uh, permissions within uh, that environment is what we're talking about to provide prescriptive guidance for the developers to implement. And it could also be, I suppose, for end users. So using the example of TLS 1.2, I'll bet if everybody's using Windows 10, you'd be surprised to find out that the default configuration, unless there's some group policy that's pushed out to you, is going to allow 1.1. And so what would the procedures be, for example? Uh, One might be is to go ahead and tell the users to type uh, the IE, bring up the Internet Explorer, And then from there, the next procedure is going to be, say, go to tools, go to internet options, go to advanced, scroll all the way down to the bottom of the settings and see if the use TLS 1.1 is checked. And if it is, uncheck it. And if 1.0 is checked, uncheck it. And if SSL 3.0 is checked, definitely uncheck it. Then click OK. Following those procedures then means that what happens is the end user has accomplished the goal of disabling these lesser protocols. So that's what you see, procedures step by step. You could also call those a how-to instruction guide, right? But but whatever they do, and again, procedures in general tend to have a limited audience. But as I explained right there, if you actually went through and did that on your machine, you could figure out whether or not you're vulnerable to potentially connecting to websites with a deprecated security protocol and be able to fix that. So if we revisit control objectives as being things of targets or conditions to ensure policy intent is being met, what is an actual control and and how would we uh, map that to some of these standards? Well, controls can come in one of three flavors technical controls, administrative controls, or physical controls. Technical controls work on computers. Something such as setting up passwords, configuring encryption, etc. Those are technical controls. Administrative controls are policies telling people you shall do this, you must do this, you should do that if we're talking about a guideline. And then physical controls, which neither work on the computer nor the people, could be in your environment. For example, alarms, security cameras, badging systems, etc. All of those contribute to being able to go ahead and prevent, detect, and respond to threat actors. Essentially, the purpose of a control is to reduce the ability of some threat actor to exploit a vulnerability. Having controls in place, for example, if we go with the physical control, having a detective control looking at a camera would indicate whether somebody is trying to access a restricted area. 
if in that restricted area we have our servers, we would like to know about that in advance. And so that type of physical control allows us to detect a threat actor. And other types of controls for the technical controls, for example, utilizing AES-256 encryption and proper key management would then prevent a threat actor from being able to steal your information. And as a CISO, we need to just think about controls a little bit. These are things that our organization has committed to doing, right? So we need to say, are these still relevant? Can I take some of these away? Or, hey, we, we agree we need to do these, but I'm finding our organization isn't doing this here. So how are we committed to getting back on track? And, and it's a finding when you're not meeting those controls. And, and it could come from cyber, it could come from audit, it could come from any type of regulator looking at the controls to identifying where the gaps in your systems, uh, processes, and practices are in an organization. Right. And other controls are out there too. For example, corrective controls, which can put, be put into place to ensure that something is brought back to where it should be. And compensating controls. And I tell people when you hear the word compensating control, wake up in that boring staff meeting and pay attention. A compensating control means the primary control has failed or is likely to fail. And therefore, this is the next best thing. Compensating control says, what would I do in the situation where I can't do something the right way? So be aware that compensating controls are special. Controls always map to standards. But the reverse is not necessarily true. You could have a standard that doesn't have a associated control, but in general, only create a control if you can map it back to a standard. Often when we do compliance testing, it's done on the control sets. Let's take a look and see what you have in place. Let's verify that your cameras are connected, hooked up. Let's make sure that your software is running correctly, that your version is proper, et cetera, that your people are following the policies. And this compliance testing can be done on a periodic basis, often annually. If you're going to put a new system into production, after the controls have been identified and allocated, test them. Make sure they work correctly. Make sure they're able to prevent or detect or respond as necessary so that before a system goes live, we have a higher confidence that if something potentially goes wrong, we can detect it. So we've talked about guidelines, we've talked about procedures and controls. Is the baseline something different or is it similar in nature to these other topics? Well, when you talked a little bit earlier, Ross, about procedures, you'd straight almost right into the baseline world. And what baselines are, are configuration or initial setup for new equipment or perhaps software. They're technical instructions. So although we were talking about procedures such as Here's how to go ahead and change your SSL 3.0, TLS 1.0, and 1.1 and, and take them out. A baseline would be how do I configure a system? So if I'm going to buy new hardware, for example, and let's say that we need to buy a thousand PCs a month, we have a large organization, or even a smaller one, not as many. Your baseline could say ensure that you have a at least a seventh generation core i5 Intel processor with eight gigs of memory and so much of hard drive space and this level, et cetera, et cetera. That baseline then suggests that that's where we're going to start. Or 
if we're going to go ahead and configure a cloud uh, instantiation, if we're going to go ahead and look at instances, we might say, here's a baseline that we want to utilize. And so every time we go ahead and we spin up a new instance, it's going to have this type of technical configurations. And fortunately for us, there are a lot of resources at the baseline level. The Center for Internet Security, uh, DISA STIGs, even vendor recommendations exist to give us known baselines that if we start at that level, then we're less likely to have problems because somebody has already thought about what are the things that you need to set in advance. And so this is where you want your security tooling to really interact with the the practices and of the of the environment, right? So mm-hmm. if we're scanning a system and there's a CIS baseline configuration that says it's configured the following way, we can do a misconfiguration check to say, okay, out of the hundred things, how many are that way? And this is really valuable because it ensures compliance. So be sure you don't just have policies that you can't test. You got to get all the way down to the baseline configurations where you can show the compliance. Now, once we've gone through our whole tree, if you will, our policies, our control objectives, standards, guidelines, procedures, controls, and baseline, we need to report on things. How well are we doing? And those our metrics. We collect data to facilitate decision-making and also to meet compliance. And essentially there's three different levels at which we can collect information. At the operator level, we're going to collect, do what are called measurements. A measurement is a snapshot in time. It's like looking at the dashboard of your vehicle. How fast are you going? What's your oil pressure? What's your RPM on the tack, etc. There's no trending information. There's nothing that says where you were or where you're going. It's the current state of a system or a configuration. And so as a result, those measurements are useful to say, where are we right now? We were talking before the broadcast about using up some of our cloud storage. And my measurement of where am I for my Google storage is I'm at about 88 or 89% of my storage is in use. Of course, they like to sell me more. Where was I a month ago? Where am I going to be next month? That's not part of a measurement. At the mid-management level, which is typically where we are going to operate as CISOs or those who are in leadership roles working toward a CISO, we are going to collect metrics. Metrics are measurements taken over time, and it shows trends and allows us to influence our decisions. Now I can look at on a quarterly basis, on a monthly basis, et cetera, where have I been? And where am I likely to go? From this, I can then make decisions to say, hey, we're slipping here. We need to go ahead and implement more assets or controls or more efforts. At the senior management level, we'll collect up to what we call KPIs, key performance indicators. This is used to assess the overall state of security. And these key performance indicators could be delineated by business unit for management focus. If we're, for example, looking at how many, you know, how long are patches remaining outstanding for those that have a CVSS score of 6.0 or higher, and probably we should probably just go at the 9.0 or higher, we might find out that by business units, some business units are patching them quickly, others are not. Well, senior management can use that to say, hey, marketing, you need to get with the program or 
some other division is doing well. So measurements, metrics, and KPIs is a hierarchy. And I love this quote from Lord Kelvin. He says, if you cannot measure it, you cannot improve it. And when you think about it, it really comes down to the point when you can measure what you're speaking about and express it in a, in a number, you know something about it. And when you can't do that, your knowledge is meager and unsatisfactory. So mm-hmm. having the ability to have data that you know is quality data, that is recent data, right? Nothing really blows the securities uh, trust. It, as when I send somebody data and it's wrong, and now I got everybody spun up on trying to fix data that's not even right, that that's a showstopper in a lot of trust relationships, right? Right. And as the corollary to Lord Kelvin's, you expect what you inspect. And that came about in our military. If you don't inspect it, they're not going to do it. So what are the challenges then? to cybersecurity governance. It sounds like we've just got this big stack of documents. If we lock ourselves in a room for several weeks, we should be able to walk out with this big pile and say, ta-da, as I come down the mountain with my stone tablets of policy in hand, I've solved the problem. But the reality is there's a lot of challenges. And Seth Swinton at Carnegie Mellon's Software Engineering Institute had laid out five of them, which I wanted to mention briefly. First one is cybersecurity strategy and goals, which means what? It means that senior leadership has a responsibility to first assess their current risk management approach to determine whether or not it's satisfactory. And also means that we have to define our strategy and goals for our current state and from that derive enterprise level policy. If we don't establish an overarching strategy and set some goals, it's like we're doing quotes again, Yogi Berra, if you don't know where you're going, you're going to get there. So first one, have some strategy, have some goals. Second challenge to governance, have a standardized process. Tasks are often defined clearly, but we don't often have management of those tasks defined clearly. And as a result, there might be some activity that needs to be done, but we haven't informed our management how we expect them to oversee it, to validate it. We want to ensure our processes are repeatable and consistent. That repeatability ensures that we are going to gain the same level of results. And if we've taken the time to do our homework correctly with regard to researching what it is we need, then we're going to significantly reduce our risk. The corollary is that ad hoc, inconsistent approaches are going to lead to shortfalls and increased breaches. The third thing yeah. he points, yeah, go ahead, please. Yeah, I think as you think about this, uh, a key example is this whole concept of lean management, which is how do you get rid of all of the waste from your organization? And to do that, you have to standardize the processes to, to start making them more streamlined and more effective. Right, exactly. So the third one then, enforcement and accountability. Let's make sure that our processes will enforce our requirements because if the processes don't enforce the requirements, then failures will occur. And also think about people. If there's no accountability to follow the process, people will come up with their own approach. And not that we don't like innovation, but some things the innovation could work against us because it means we have non-standard implementation. And if we remember from the previous challenge, lack of standardization causes 
gaps in security. Also, our cybersecurity governance must be measurable and enforced, a lot of what we've been talking about throughout this entire program. The fourth is senior leadership oversight. One of the things that is the greatest challenge for those of us in the industry is to not have senior management wholly on board and supporting us. If they have a compliance-focused mentality, well, what's the least we need to do to get compliant? Compliance is a C minus. It's not excellence. Compliant organizations get hacked all the time. So senior leadership must support cybersecurity governance and remain engaged. If we go back and look at the ISO 27001, Section 5 lists leadership principles, including a requirement to establish policy and control objectives, integrate requirements into organizational processes, and for management to ensure that sufficient resources are available, which is the fifth challenge, making sure we have the resources to get it done. If we allocate funding to the highest priorities that are adequate for the risk level, we make sure that the money goes where it's needed the most. But in addition to that, we can't forget the people. Dedicated funding for ongoing training is key. One of the core satisfaction items for people in the cybersecurity world, from people I've talked to, are working for an organization that will invest in their skill sets, in their training, and even in their certifications. Yeah, it's really hard to be an effective CISO when you don't have resources, right? And and you'll see a lot of standards will say, hey, you, you need about 5% of the people or budget. So if there's 100 people in an organization uh, for the IT department, is, is five the right number? It, it may or may not be, but that's a starting point of where you want to have a conversation, right? Mm-hmm. To make sure you have what you need to really drive the strategy and control objectives of the organization. So we've put together, Ross, a pretty complete framework. And then, of course, someone would say, all right, you got me. You convinced me I need to act. But where do I get started? Where do you start if you want to build a policy library? Sort of the godfather of policies, Charles Cresson Wood, who's been doing cybersecurity at least as long as I have, has issued over the years a series of books called Information Security Policies Made Easy. He's up to version 14. Not so sure how recently that's been updated. I ran into him when I was speaking at RSA a few years back, and we we talked a little bit about security and how it's evolved. But basically, every policy he ever wrote over a 30-plus year career, he saved a copy. And you can get all those as templates. Center for Internet Security has CIS benchmarks, which are dozens of systems and software, including problem providers, of how should we set these up? And SANS Institute has a number of policy templates in PDF and doc format, uh, although I'm not sure the PDF is very helpful because it's tough to edit, but the doc is much more editable. And there's many government and nonprofits that offer policies as public documents. But it comes with a caveat. Be careful of these templates. Your environment is unique. Copy and paste is no substitute for proper governance. Yet, I've found it's a whole lot easier to start with something than a blank piece of paper. So work with other professionals in your industry and you might be able to go ahead and get a head start. Yeah, I I really like this. And one of the other pieces that I would say is find what policies are understood in your organization and which ones are not. So a simple thing that 
I've seen some CISOs do is send out a form that says, here's 10 standards uh, and with a question of A, B, C, or D to, to, un to measure understanding, right? And now, as you see, here's the 10 standards and 40% of the organization only gets question two right. Hey, guess what standard you may need to rework? Or guess where you need to put your security awareness education on because it's the one that's least understood. Mm -hmm. And in and, and simple little forms and tricks where you can pull out some metrics like that, allow you to have this continuous learning on your policy objectives within your organization. Excellent point. So, so let's wrap it up here. Uh, there's really no exact way to achieve a full policy library through downloading, but you need to start somewhere. So review what you've got, do a gap analysis based on some of the known risks, the threats, your operating environment, and get going. And recognize that your output are going to consist of policies, high-level mandatory requirements established by management, control objectives, targets or conditions to ensure policy intent is met, standards, medium-level formal requirements that comply with policy, guidelines, recommended practices allowing flexibility, procedures, step-by-step -step methodology to complete an objective, controls, technical, administrative, physical, that allow us to prevent, detect, or respond to threat actors, baseline configurations or initial setups for new equipment or software, and then metrics, collections of data to facilitate decision-making and meet compliance. And that can be done at the measurement level, snapshot in time, metric level, measurements over time, or key performance indicators informing senior management. All right. Well, G Mark, thank you so much for your understanding and sharing that with everyone. I think this has been really important to understand. You know, like I said before, it was helpful for someone like me coming from a very technical environment to going to a highly regulated environment. And we hope this provides you additional CISO tradecraft to improve your skill set. Once again, please subscribe to our show and uh, follow our LinkedIn group. We have this new LinkedIn group called CISO Tradecraft, and you can see topics and relevant discussions and participate in the discussions that are posted. So once again, thank you for attending, and we appreciate your time. Take care, everyone, and talk to you next time.